I have this wonderful privilege in my life of getting to talk. I was talking to one of my kids this week, and they'll, they'll ask me things like, which one is your favorite kid? And whichever kid asks me is obviously the correct answer. So if Judson says, Daddy, which is, who's your favorite kids? I'll say, Judson, you are. And if Elena asks me, which is your favorite kid? Which is, then I'll say, you are, Elena. But one of the kids asked me in front of the other kids this week, who is your favorite, 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 favorite? And I said, Jesus. And they all got it. They're like, okay, that's a pretty decent answer. And I have this amazing privilege of, as a career, getting to talk to people about Jesus and uh, make Jesus the center of our church and, and of, of my occupation and what I do on a weekly basis. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. and it's, it's very exciting. And so every, every Christmas, we try to spend some time just talking about Jesus. We, we don't want to get past Jesus during the Christmas season and this week, I want to talk about Jesus, our righteousness. And that sounds kind of churchy and, and uh, may not be exactly clear what I'm talking about, but it'll, it will be clear as we go on. And, and I just want to, I want to point out today that Jesus being our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus becomes our righteousness. And what that means is, is really, 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 really good news. It's, it's, it's about the best news there is, and as we go on, I, ho- I hope that you'll start to, to think the same way I do about it. When, when the angels appeared to the shepherds announcing the coming of Jesus, this is what they said. They said, do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. And I, I want to talk today about why, why it's good news. Why is it good news that Jesus came? Because we hear things like, Jesus will be our judge, and, and as, as you saw in the clip uh, from Pilgrim's Progress, having a judge at all can be a scary thing. Like, like just the, the term judge and judgment, we, we carry it as, like, like it, it, it increases our, our burden and our load like it did for the character Christian there, but it doesn't necessarily have to. If, if I was going to court for one reason or another and the judge was that guy, that's scary. If the judge was my brother, there would be something a little less scary about that. It was like, oh, you get me. And when we talk about Jesus, our righteousness, that's, that's kind of why it's such good news is because we have a brother and, and a friend that is our judge. But that'll, that'll become clear as, as we go on. But before, before we touch on that, I want to ask a question, and it's what you want. What do you want out of life? Like if, if, you, could, if you could plan your next 20 years or if, if you could ask the question, what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? Or, or you could... All your dreams would be fulfilled. What would that look like? And for some people, you get on their TikTok account or their Instagram account, and you know real quick what it is, and it's, it's travel and experiences and fun and friendship and relationship, and I'm not downplaying any of those things. And for some people, it's, it's acclaim or fame, and for some people, it's wealth and comfort or romance would be something very valuable to, to most people. And so when we ask the question, what you want, it reveals a lot about who we are, and I think we have to be careful with the question, what you want, because when we, when we start to approach that question, we start to assume it's always a good answer. We, we have this tendency to, to appreciate our own motives and our own heart and downplay other people's motives and other hearts. And so, so we all know that if somebody said, what do you want, not every answer is going to be a good answer. Some people will pursue stuff that isn't, isn't healthy or isn't good or doesn't help with human thriving universally, isn't honoring to God and so forth. And then if we ask the question, what do you want people to say about you 20 years after you're gone? First off, it assumes you're going to be remembered 20 years after you're gone, which 
may or may not happen. For most of us, we're going to fade into oblivion. That was a downer for Christmas, wasn't it? <laughs> I just, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, no, oh, that's, that's way to go, H. We're going to fade. <laughs> well, the, the, one other thing that, that question does is it, it places the, burdens on, the burden on other people's opinions of us. And that can be an unhealthy thing. And as, as we go along today, we're going to find out that, that there's just unhealthy stuff that goes on in us pretty often. And if we're expected to climb Mount Legalism and, and do everything right and perform the perfect life. So when we ask the question, what do you want? It kind of, it kind of lays a foundation of how, how do I arrive at the perfect life? And what we're going to find is that the perfect life is kind of unreasonable and unrealistic. And so Gerda says, wait, hold on here. And who is Gerda? I have no idea. I just found this picture, and she looks like a Gerda. So there it is. Gerda says, hold on for a second. It's because these can, be, these can be bad questions. If we say, what do we want people to say about us, or how do I want to live my life, there, there can be a measure of selfishness, like a taint of self-centeredness or narcissism involved. There isn't always, but we have, to be, we have to be careful about the question, what do I want out of life? Because not all of our answers are going to be the right answers, or not all of our answers are going to be perfect answers. I, on my sabbatical, started facing off with this question, and I started facing it off with my family and with my, with, with, you know, my kids and my wife and my family. I started facing it off as a church. I started facing off with it as far as I'm, I'm now most likely over halfway through life. I'm 48 years old right now. If I live another 48 years, I'll be 96, and the odds are stacked against me. And so I'm, I'm on the downslope, it feels like a little bit. And my body's telling me I'm on the downslope. And so, so I'm facing off with these questions of what matters in life and what's important and kind of who am I and what do I want out of life. And, and then that begs the question, what is the right answer to that question? What is the right answer to what do I want out of life? And I found this Greek word. I've been, do, I've been doing what's called a soteriological study. And so soteriology is the study of salvation. So I've been going through and studying in the Greek all the words related to salvation or damnation or judgment or saved or redeemed or, or whatever it was. And I found this word. And as soon as I figured out what this is, this is my place in my house that I'd arranged during my uh, sabbatical. This is, I call it my safe room because it was literally a room with a safe in it when we bought the house. And it was small, and, and, and we've used it for various purposes since we've had the house, but I've turned it into, like, my meditation closet or my prayer room. And you can see I've got a little Amish desk that's a hardwood chair that just fits, you know, like you're not supposed to be comfortable when you're doing this. And so, but then I've got my beanbag for when I want to be comfortable. And, and I've got my whiteboard for recording notes, and I'm trying to create an environment that feels soothing and calming to me. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really loving spending hours in this place, and I'm realizing it's okay that that's part of my life, that that as a pastor, that contemplation and meditation and prayer and study are supposed to be a part of my life, and I'm supposed to be okay with that. It's, it's not always easy to be okay with that, but sometimes it is. And I've discovered this Greek word. And this Greek word, when, it, when, when I started studying it and started reading it, it just, it just popped off the page, and, and something inside me said, that's what I want. That word, that one word, that's, that's the thing. If, if somebody asks me, what do you want out of life, that's it. That's the one word. And I'm going to share that word with you today. It's called dikaiosune. And it appears approximately 100 times in the New Testament. It's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty vast, pretty expansive topic where the New Testament is concerned. So if you're going to read from Jesus on in the Bible, you're going to see this word dikaiosune a lot. 
And I'm going to show you some verses, and those of you who are familiar with the Bible will recognize immediately how it's usually translated in the English, and some of you won't, and that's okay, but it says, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount touches on Dikaiosune several times. It says, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for this word, Dikaiosune, for they will be filled. So whatever this thing is, this Dikaiosune, whatever it is, is something that we're supposed to desperately want like we want water like we want food. Our base needs is something we're supposed to desire. And then later in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, but seek first. So he he says, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. But instead, seek first his kingdom, which is an amazing Greek word in and of itself, but it says, and his dikaiosunane. It says, forget about everything else. All this stuff that you think you want out of life, let me take care of that. Here's what you should focus on, the kaiosunane. And for those of you that, that know, yell it out. What's this word in, in English? Righteousness, that's right. We see, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so it's this word righteousness. But then the great philosopher and sage, Inigo Montoya, says, you keep using that word. <laughs> I don't think you know what that word means. When we, when we speak it in English, there's, there's a particular nuance to it. When we talk about nuance, we mean that, that if, if a particular person heard this particular word, they would hear a particular thing that another particular person wouldn't hear. So if I, if I stand up here and say, Paul walked across the stage to grab his guitar, you guys would visualize him. You probably wouldn't visualize him at all. It would just be kind of ho-hum. But if I said he pranced across the stage and grabbed his guitar... That would, that would be something totally different. If I said he sauntered or he strode, these are, these are all words that kind of mean walk, kind of mean travel, but they have, carry a particular nuance and they mean a particular thing when you hear it in your particular ears. And I'm convinced that the Greek hearers, when they heard the word righteousness, heard something totally different than what we hear in English. When we hear it in English, we think morally upright. Somehow, sex, drugs, and rock and roll enters the picture. We... Uh, we see righteousness and we think right living, like, like exceptional morality. If we, now, now, if I say that dude is righteous, you might think he's cool, a cool dude because of the lingo, right? That might be one nuance you hear. But if I say I am righteous, you think, well, la-di-da, <laughs> right? I mean, he just must think he's the upper crust of morality because he's righteous, because that's how we view this righteousness thing. We view it as like lawful, as always morally appropriate, making good choices, and I'm convinced that the Greek hearers, although those things entered into it, it's not exactly what they hear. So when we read in English, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we think blessed are those who hunger and thirst for having their collar set just perfectly and their, their view of people and their relationships and their money and, and their, their diet and everything else in order, their sex lives. They've, they've, they've just got everything down pat. And I don't think that's what the Greek hearers heard at all. And I think when we, if we say... Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If this, is the thing, if this is the prime thing that we're supposed to look for in life, we probably ought to figure out the nuance of the word. We probably ought to check it out and see what God is really trying to say to us. And so when we talk about dikaiosune, if you study Greek lexicons and Greek scholars, there's a bit of moral uprightness to it. And I don't want to get around that because morality is important and good decisions are important. And so we can't, we can't just hand wave morality. But there's also this overarching theme of like a personal, relational 
justification, which means the judge looks upon your life and approves. And so, and, and it's much deeper than that. I, I encourage you to study this stuff on your own, not to just let me spoon feed it to you. But I'm writing it as a big old divine thumbs up. And there is a difference. There's a difference between always being perfect, always being morally upright, always making the right decisions, and having the one who is perfect look upon your life with approval. That's what I want. That's what I want desperately. When I, when I think about my own life, that's the thing I want more than anything at all is, is the approval of the one who designed me. I, I believe I was designed for a purpose. I believe you were designed for a purpose. I believe there's an instruction manual in, in, in the imagination of God that says, this is what it means to be Amanda Sheehan. This is, this is who you are, and this is what special things you were supposed to do in your life. And, and it, would, it would be nice to know that the one who designed me or designed Amanda looks upon us and says, yeah, good job at life. And that, that may not be high on your priority list, but I, I believe it should be. And this word, dikaiosune, it, it covers behavior and being. It's not, it's not just performing appropriately. It's, it's like being in correct proximity. So one of my children, there's, there's a difference between a child who does some boneheaded stuff and all children do, like you and I do. Everybody does boneheaded stuff. But it would be a totally different thing if one of my sons did something boneheaded and then vanished from me because he did something boneheaded. You see, that? now the being thing has been called into question. Now his relationship with me as a son has been called into question. So when we talk about the kaiosune, we're not just talking about perfect performance. We're talking about being who you were designed to be in right relationship the way you were designed to be. And it's, a, it's just a totally different mentality. And so when we approach Christianity and we approach the Bible, it changes everything. If we think the Bible is a book of rules that says you must do this, must do that, we might miss the being part. We might carry that burden our whole lives and it's a burden that God intended to lift and therefore God would look on our life and say, ah, I disagree. Not, not, not thumbs down to you, but thumbs down to that concept that you're supposed to carry your own burdens, that you're supposed to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and climb mountain legality and reach God. He says, that's not how it's supposed to be. He says, I'm coming down there. And it's a totally different view of Scripture. And so we're talking about designer determination here. The, the, the creator gets to determine teleology. Means, so teleology is, is like the study of purpose. And so if I, if I write a book, I have in mind what I want that book to accomplish. If I design a robot, I have in mind what I want that robot to do functionally. And when it comes to you, how better to, ask the question, or how better to answer the question, what do you want out of life, than to ask the one who designed you and gave you birth and and put breath in your lungs. That, that seems like the person you'd want to turn to to say, what is my life supposed to look like? So the answer isn't inward. It comes from outward, and it's actualizing. And so we look to God. And it's so important, even, even in our daily lives, even in our judicial system. This is a guy, Raguel Aguilera Medeiros, who was, uh, he was driving a semi-truck on I-70 in Colorado a while, in like 2019. And the brakes gave out on his truck. And according to the prosecution, so he was prosecuted for murder because his truck plowed into about 12 cars and four people died. And it was a horrible, horrible situation. And the prosecution said he made a lot of mistakes. They said this guy could have made different decisions and these people would have survived. And so then he was prosecuted and 
The, the main mistake he made was there was an, off, an emergency off-ramp that he chose not to take or, or didn't get to for whatever reason. And then they also say that he was exceeding the speed limit going 85 miles an hour, but then there's other people arguing that he was, he was on a downhill and they, they drive trucks and say once you're driving a truck on a downhill that there's no stopping it. This was gravity. This wasn't his choice. And so the trial was pretty wild. But in, ultimately, he was convicted of about 27 different counts. And for whatever reason in Colorado law, these have to, they, they are required by law, by the legal, legal system, to run his sentences concurrently. Not concurrently, consecutively. Consecutively. So 27 consecutive counts. He was sentenced to 110 years in prison because the brakes went out on his truck and he made some bad decisions in that emergency situation. So there's, there's uh, petitions out there now for him to be granted clemency or even, uh, what's it called when he's, he's allowed, what's it, pardon, clemency or pardon. And there's millions of signatures on, these, on this petition at this point. But there's one person that really matters in this decision. So the petition really does nothing. It's, it's, it's ultimately up to the governor. Now he can appeal and go all the way to the Supreme Court, and I think they're going to try to do that. But this is a good example of the law versus the Kyosune, is judicial approval can come in and say, you weren't perfect, you didn't do all the things right, but you're absolved, you're free. And there's, there's a part of that in Kyosune is that it's, it's not about us doing all the right things all the right time, it's about there is one who sees our life and gets us and is with us and knows us and cares for us and is compassionate towards us and shows mercy towards us and we can grasp that in our lives. And as we grasp that thing in our lives, it affects us. It changes us. And so it's a big old divine thumbs up. You'll notice it's not a human thumbs up. It's not a, a personal, I've nailed it. I don't fail. I am upright and holy. It's God looking upon us and saying, you're my man. You're my woman. And we read things in Scripture like this that have to do with designer determination. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. But then Gerda steps in here once more because Gerda's always sticking her head where it doesn't belong. She says, hold on here a second. Because we can even, we can even do this. We can say, well, I want divine approval. That's the, that's the thing I want. And so maybe, maybe our focus is correct, our direction is correct, but maybe our heart behind the whole thing is still unhealthy because Truthfully, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your dikaiosunane surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless God gives you a thumbs up bigger than he gives up the, the legalists, you don't go to the kingdom of heaven. And we can say, well, I better get my stuff together, right? I, I mean, I better, I better work hard at, at getting God to smile at me. I better, I better do what God wants. I better figure, figure out what, what the rules are and, and do the rules. And so, so even when we start to realize that this thing is relational, it doesn't mean that we're free from that burden that Christian carried up Mount Legality. In fact, it can get worse because it's an impossible climb. In the movie clip, for those that saw that didn't get to see it online, it's, it's, it's from Pilgrim's Progress, and the character Christian is trying to relieve his burdens, which is represented by a backpack, and he's trying to climb Mount Legality to meet Mr. Legality, who says he can offer some relief from that burden. It says this in the book. It says, Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but it seemed so high. It did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further lest the hill should fall on his head. His burden 
now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. And so it's possible that you, you hear this dikaiosune thing and you say judicial approval. Okay, I'm going to earn, I'm going to earn judicial approval. So, so I better have my sex life just, I mean, I better, I better, I better just get it right. And all my finances and I better drink, I better not drink and better not smoke and better not hang out with people that do. And all this, all these rules can come in. And you say, you say and, and then here, here's where things get really, really hard, is you say, so I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to smoke. Let's just, I mean, hypothetically, let's just throw that out there and pretend that that's the standard, which I'm not saying it is. I'm not even saying, I, I think those things are important, important decisions to think about, but the reason would be, most Christians would say, because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? If somebody said, why shouldn't I smoke? They'd say, because your body is a temple. That's the Christian answer to that question. Well, then that means, should I eat fried food? Should I eat, should I consume caffeine? <laughs> Stepping on some idols, all right. Should I eat processed sugar? Should I get eight hours sleep at night? And how can I get eight hours sleep at night when I've got to take care of my kids? And which comes first? Is taking care of my kids or eight hours sleep at night? I don't What? I can't do both? And you see what happens is you get lost in this mire of legality. When you want to reach God by performing correctly, when you want to achieve judicial approval by correct action, the burden never ends. There is no right answer. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but I'm saying there's always going to be further questions as you go further into, into the questions of morality. There, there's a show called The Good Place, which, which really tackles a lot of questions of morality, and there's one character who always does what is right. And what you find out is that that guy is a total schmuck he, he, he lets people, because, because you got one person who wants to initiate their will to destroy another, and he doesn't want to bother that person, so he lets that person do the thing, and so that person ends up hurting the other person. But then he wants, so, so he finds himself torn between people all the time, trying to make people happy and trying to uh, do right by everyone, and you just simply can't do right by everyone which kind of me, isn't that an extra backpack that you're throwing on on top of your backpack? And then you're throwing another backpack on top of that until you're so weighted down you can't take a single step and you just fall over. There's got to be a better way. That's where Jesus, our righteousness, comes in. And, and, and we, we hear things like love is the law. And in Romans 13, which is one of the passages that I have written on my whiteboard in my safe room right now, it says that whatever command there is, it's summed up in love. 1 John 4 says, everyone who loves is born of God. Jesus himself in John 13 said, a new commandment I give you, and that is to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But here's the deal. We think, good, all we got to do is love. Well, hold on. I, don't, I think Gerda would step in here for a second and say, eh, it's kind of a higher standard, isn't it? I mean, it's, even, it's kind of a harder law to love. It's, it's, not like the, it's not like love lets us off scot-free. When Jesus says, my new commandment is to love, it's not like, well, <laughs> I just love perfectly. But do you really? Do any of us really? And it doesn't get any easier. In fact, I think an actual look at, at love as the rule becomes a little more burdensome. It can be a selfish pursuit. There's this passage in Romans 10 where it says, People being ignorant of the dikaiosunane of God sought to establish their own and did not submit to God's dikaiosunane. And so, so there's this way of judicial approval, of relational, fatherly, looking down and giving a thumbs up that God wants, 
and we've corrupted it and messed it up. And so, so even, in seek, even in seeking God's approval, even in saying, God, I want you, I want to be with you, I, I want to be yours, I want, you're my designer, you fulfill me, I will go where you want me to go, I will do what you want me to do, it can still be I will, I do, I am, I, 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 I've got to get this right. And you can still be a completely self-centered religious person. It's kind of inescapable, and that's kind of the, the point. It also, when we, when, we, when we seek God in that way, it creates what I would call a dysfunctional dad, or at least begs the question, is this a dysfunctional dad? Jason Clark, who we've had speak here before, and he, he has a uh, podcast called uh, Rethinking God with Tacos, which is an amazing podcast. He said something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but I, I've never forgotten it. He said, desperation for dad means dysfunction. Any, any, any relationship where a son or a daughter is desperate for their father, something is missing in that relationship that's unhealthy. And something's unhealthy in us if we're desperate for God. I got to get there. I got to do it. I got I to gotta be. I got to change. I, I got to... I gotta search, I gotta seek, I gotta obey, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, so that my dad will approve me. Something's missing there too. You see, the whole thing is just jacked up. The whole concept of reaching God, of being righteous, of climbing Mount Legality, of, of arriving at Dikaiosune, like, like as human beings, we got no way. There's no path forward that works. But then Gerda steps in again and says, now hold on, slow your roll here a little bit. This is where things get good. I know up till now it's been like, <laughs> well, why even bother? Gerda's saying, don't, don't, <laughs> Gerda is so dumb, I can't believe I'm using this. When the, when the angel said to the, to the shepherds, do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. So we describe a system for all people, a system where none of us add up. Doesn't mean none of us, it doesn't mean we're not important. It doesn't mean we're not beloved or loved. It means we will never be righteous. We cannot be righteous, what we mean so in English. But that's where the good news starts. In John 8, it says that when Jesus comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and dikaiosune, and judgment. See, up until this time, it was a system of laws. Up until this time, it was pedantic legalism that said, if you obey this and this and this and this, God will be pleased with you, and if you don't, he will be displeased with you. And it says in John that Jesus will come and say, nope, that's not how the system works. In Titus, it says he saved us not because of dikaiosune, things that we have done, not because... We have done the right things or the correct things or achieved the correct relationship. You see, see even in our search for the relational aspect of Dikaiosune, it's not, it says we're going to fall short. It says it's not because of us, it's because of his great mercy. In Romans 3, it says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, this is the same word we're using, in God's sight by the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And sin is another word where I think Inigo Montoya would step up and say, you've been using that word. I don't think you know what that word means. Another fascinating Greek study that we're not going to get into today. But here's my point, is that learning you can't 
learning that you don't add up, learning that this is an impossible climb is kind of the first step to freedom. It's kind of the first step to total liberation in this area of trying to add up and trying to perform and trying to be and to achieve. And so when we talk about it as a selfish pursuit, when we talk about it as an impossible climb, it's okay to say, I can't. In fact, that's one of the main things God wants to teach us is that we can't. When we talk about it being a selfish pursuit, it's okay to say, I'm a selfish mess. That's, that's where it starts. That's where liberty starts. That's where freedom begins, is saying, I love me a whole lot, probably to unhealthy levels. The command of God is that we love one another, that we look to others and love them more than we love ourselves, it seems to indicate at times. And it's okay to say, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. That's where it starts. That's where the freedom starts. And even as far as, even as, far as the dysfunctional dad part, we, it's, it's, it's important to look at this relationship with God, and, and it, it appears dysfunctional, it appears broken, to say, maybe the dysfunction is in me. Maybe I'm really small, and he's really big, and maybe he's good, and I'm something else. And you know what? That's an okay place to be, and that's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of the Christian message. In Romans 3, it also says, For the gospel of Dikaiosunein of God is revealed. A Dikaiosunein that is by faith from first to last, the Dikaios will live by faith. There's, there's, there's the kicker right there. So it says, in the gospel, God's righteousness, God's Dikaiosunein, is revealed. And it's the kind that is achieved by what? What's the word here that pops out on the page? What's, what's the thing? We're, if we're looking for Dikaiosunein, what's the thing it says we need? Faith. This is the Greek word pistis. And it's, it's a rich, rich word. But somehow faith is the answer, not performance, but faith. The righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's so many passages, so many passages, and it always feels like a cheat code when you're preparing a sermon to say, okay, we're going to look up every word on faith and just throw a bunch of verses on the screen, and I could have done that. I, could, I mean, just screen after screen after screen about how faith and righteousness are, are joined together. And so then we have to ask the question, what is faith? And faith, pistis, is, is, it is mental assent. It's, it's seeing something and recognizing it, but it goes beyond that. It's placing one's trust in what one has perceived. So right now, Bob Pike is placing his faith in that chair he's sitting in, right? He saw it. He believed it would hold him because it's the same chair he sits in every Sunday. He said, that chair held me last Sunday. He didn't process all this. It was just there. There was mental assent. But then he placed his faith in the chair by getting by sitting down and putting his weight on it and, it and expecting it to support him. And so if you're in a dark room and there's a crack in the door and, and there's light beyond that crack and you walk towards the light, you're starting to put your faith in the light. You're expecting it to do something that you 
previously have offered mental assent to. You, you know that light is going to illuminate. It's going to offer protection. It's going to offer comfort. It's going to open, open, open a whole new world. It's going, to, it's going to diminish your fear. It's going to calm anxiety. You know light is good. And you walk towards the light, and you open the door, and you enter the light. This is faith. It doesn't mean that you are fully confident and know for sure that everything is going to be good past that light. It's not you striving, thinking, okay, if I can just be the light, if I can just act a certain way, I can, I can approach the light and, and step into the light. It's, it's not that at all. It's, it's you see it, you know what it can do, so you act upon that knowledge. And that's what it means to have faith in Christ. That's what it means to put, put your faith in Jesus, is to see that he's good and to trust the chair, is to sit in it, to, to take the seat, to enter the light, to, to respond to the thing. Whatever the thing is that you're giving mental assent to, it goes beyond saying, I'll bet that light is helpful. Well, good for you. But that light is helpful, therefore I will engage. Therefore I will enter. Therefore I will be consumed. That's kind of what the word faith means. And this is why it's good, good news. is because do you see how many burdens that lifts. You no longer have to perform adequately. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's why the shepherds could, the angels could say to the shepherds without concern, do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will, to, will be to all people. So here, so I, if you, like me, are in your safe room, and you hear that Dikaiosune, my, my creator, looks upon me with favor. And you think, that's what I want. Some of you may not think that. That's okay. I, I say it's okay. It's kind of not okay, but I hope you hear my heart. But when you hear Dikaiosune and you say, yes, please, how, how do I get that? And, and maybe, maybe you feel desperate for that, or maybe you feel like it's completely out of reach. Maybe you feel like you gave it a good go and it didn't work for you. Thankfully, God has simplified things for us. And the only thing you have to do is look to Jesus. Walk towards that light. It's not hard in a dark room to see the light, to walk towards the light, to open the light, to be consumed by the light, and to allow the light to affect you and lead you and guide you. And it doesn't mean you won't have any shadow in your life after that. It doesn't mean that that light's not going to displace things or make you uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that the light is going, that it's not going to hurt your eyes a little bit as you come into it. But what it does mean is there's a place of darkness that where nastiness dwells, where fear and anxiety builds up, where, where, where legality threatens to be that hill that falls on you and collapses over you. Or there's a place in the next, the next room over, God has revealed where that room is, how to get to that room, and it's through Jesus. And so I encourage you to study, to pray, to say to Jesus, I'm coming in. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm coming in. To walk in that light and to be consumed by that light.